The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Last week, Brian Tabb spoke to us from the end of Acts 7, in which Stephen was executed by a mob for his bold witness to Christ. And verse 2 of Acts 8, which was also in his text, tells us that immediately on the heels of Stephen's martyrdom, quote, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So now, coming from there, our text takes us further into this scattering of the believers with a particular focus on the the scattering to Samaria by a disciple named Philip. Now, this Philip is apparently a Hellenistic Jew. He's not one of the 12 disciples. There is a Philip, but he's not one of the the 12. He's the Philip that was appointed by the church to help with the distribution of widows back in Acts 6. Remember, the, the Greek widows were being overlooked in the church, and so the the church and the elders, or the apostles and the, and the church appointed six. Well, he's one of those six. So he's one of the early proto-deacons. And uh, later in the book of Acts, in Acts 21, he's called Philip the Evangelist. And just from the chapter that we're beginning right now, you'll see, okay, I get why he's called Philip the Evangelist. So now our text begins in verse 4 uh, through verse 8. And let me read it. And if you would follow along with me, Acts 8, 4 through 8. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this word, for this morning. And I pray that you do spiritual things among us. You, you have appointed this text for today, and, and I trust that you, you will work to cause us to trust the promises of Christ more and rest in your providence more and be a gospel-saturated people more and to be a people filled with joy in you and a people who spread our joy in you to others, even to all peoples, all the more from this word in this text this morning. So we pray, do all these things for our good, for our joy in you, and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, let me tell you my aim. My aim is that, and this is very careful, and I'll tell you why in just a second. My aim is that you and I trust the promises of Christ Rest in the providence of God. Speak 
the gospel and thereby be a means of joy to one another and to others. And I'll go through that again in just a second. I believe that that's what God has for us in, in this text. And, and let me tell you why I said it in those four ways. I looked at this paragraph, these four verses, and I, and, and I thought maybe I can summarize this in a sentence. And, and let me try it on you. <laughs> See if you think it's a good sentence. Um, it breaks up into four parts that will form my outline. Um, here it is. Christ's promise is accomplished by God's providence through the gospel for the joy of all peoples. I'll say it again. Christ's promise is accomplished by God's providence through the gospel for the joy of all peoples. So it breaks up into, into four parts. I mean, just my outline will be Christ's promise, God's providence, the gospel, and joy, or the joy of all peoples. So those are the four headings that I have as we walk through. Now, let's take them one at a time. Christ's promise. What do I mean by Christ's promise when I, I look at this little text? Um, when verse 4 says that Philip went to Samaria, my, my brain clicks back to Acts 1.8. Jesus' promise to the church, you, to the early disciples, the early church, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Here it is. <laughs> Here it is. It's a promise of massive influence from this little and growing Jerusalem church, starting in Jerusalem, spreading through the providence of Judea, and then into Samaria, which is significant. We'll say more about that. And so in, when verse 5 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, I say, ah, that's a direct fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Back in Acts 1.8. He said, the witness would go there. Boom, here it goes. Now, the gospel mission to Samaria is extremely significant because at the time of the early church, many of you know this, the relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritans was hostile. Animosity uh, was linked to, uh, or might be likened to the hostility between modern Jews and modern Palestinians. Near neighbors, much alienation and hatred. Generally speaking, of the culture of that day, Jews were prejudiced against Samaritans, and I assume the converse was true. They hated one another. They avoided one another. Good Jews would go around Samaria in their travels. Samaritans were, were mixed race. I kind of find a little encouragement in that. Samaritans were mixed race. When, here's the history. When the army of the Assyrians conquered the northern tribes of Israel, they stole away the rich upper class Jews and they replaced them with Arab foreigners 
and the remaining poor lower class Jews then intermarried with these Arab foreigners and hence was born, literally, the Samaritans. They were seen as a blight on pure Jewish lineage, an aberration. They were shamed as being imperfect, flawed. Samaritans were not seen by Jews as Jews, and they were not seen by Jews as Gentile dogs. They were nothing. So not only do we have that ethnic hostility, but add to that, there's a religious hostility between Jews and Samaritans. When the time came for the, the Jewish people in Israel to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, the Samaritans countered by building their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And for that blasphemy, Samaritans were excluded from the temple in Jerusalem. Despite the promise of Isaiah 56, 7, my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. No Samaritans allowed. Jewish law, Jewish regulations forbid the religiously and ethnically defiled Samaritans from the temple, they were unclean, an abomination. So point one is simply and profoundly this. Christ had promised that his disciples would bear witness to him in Samaria, despite the fact that a huge wall between Jews and Samaritans was built of historic animosity and enmity, despite the fact that there was generational prejudice, despite the fact that there's this ethnic hatred, despite the fact that there's re this relational distance, such that when Jesus meets the, the Samaritan woman at the well, she says, you're not even supposed to talk to me. Despite the religious exclusion and despite the fact that this may be the one place that the, the disciples and even Philip thought, Lord, just don't send me to <laughs> Samaria. Philip goes on the promise of Jesus. Boom. That's point one. Point two. Back in my summary sentence, my through line. Christ's promise is accomplished by God's providence. So point number two is God's providence. So now after the ascension and after Pentecost, I wonder if the 12 disciples sat down and had a strategy meeting. Surely one of the 12 had administrative planning gifts. You know, there's, there's one or two in every group. And, and I'm surely it wasn't Peter, you know, because he kind of jumps into everything. But somebody had this, let's, let's plan this. Jesus gave us this assignment to make disciples of all nations, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. So how are we going to do this? So I'm, I'm imagining they huddled up to plan, and uh, maybe it went something like this. Okay, let's break up into groups like Jesus taught us, you know, not to go alone. Peter, John, and James, you stay here in the mother church, hold down the fort for us. That leaves nine of us to go out, nine of the 12. 
Go out in three teams, maybe four teams. Team one, you take Judea. Team two, you take Samaria. Team three, well, you get the rest of the world, right? So break the huddle. Let's get to it. And there's nothing wrong with prayerful mission planning. In fact, we pray that God would give us minds to plan and strategize, but we know that our plans are never determinative, don't we? Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So in the purpose of God, the promise of Jesus that his disciples would bear witness to Samaria did not begin with great apostolic planning. No, it it didn't even begin with the 12 going out. Last week's text said the 12 stayed. Huh. No, the catalyst to this dramatic and effective spreading of the gospel came as a direct result of the murder of Stephen and the persecution that began after it. The the apostles wouldn't have planned that. But God did. Now, if you're like me, you have realized that that uh, we've, we usually fail to understand with clarity what God is doing in any given series of events, don't we? Uh, his ways are high, and we simply don't ha- have the mind of God to understand the the innumerable things he's doing at any given moment in history for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. We we, we can't comprehend it. And sometimes we get to see a piece of what he's doing. That's very comforting, but most of the times we don't. And sometimes the events are so terrible that we cannot imagine in our natural mind, how in the world God might be working for the good of his people who love him and for the glory of his name. But by faith, we trust. We trust that God is at work, even when we don't understand. Now, here in our text, what we see is this divine and often mysterious providence of God working out in ways that, in my mind, echo the providence of God in the death of Christ. Remember the phrase from Acts 4? They did in this city, talking about the death of Christ, what your hand, God, and your plan had predestined to take place. I put it here. Here in Acts 7, in the beginning of 8, in the death of Stephen, Those who stoned him did what God's hand and what God's plan had predestined to take place. 
as they hurled stones at him until he was mangled and bloodied and died a brutal death. The mob ex execution sparks the persecution spreading the gospel into the world according to the promise. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is the amazing providence of God. Pastor John, Pastor John Piper, in his most recent book, Providence, talks about this purposeful sovereignty of God. And it's a, it's a theological book, it's, a, it's a, a biblical book, and it's a practically helpful and encouraging book. It's super thick, by the way. And uh, I recommend it. It's a study of how God exerts his purposeful sovereignty for the glory of his name and the good of his people. Commenting on God's providence in missions and then sewing in several biblical texts to underscore the points, he writes this. He writes, The Lord of the harvest will catapult, Matthew 9.38, his workers to the nations. He will give them what they need to say, Mark 13, 11. He will protect them till their work is done so that not a hair of their head will perish, Luke 21, 18. And then when their assignment is complete, quote from Luke 21, 16, some they will put to death, end quote. The number of the martyrs is appointed. It is part of the plan. The terrors and setbacks of persecution are no hindrance to the coming triumph. Paul speaks for every imprisoned ambassador of Christ when he says in 2 Timothy 2, 9, quote, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Clearly, the religious authorities who spearheaded the persecution of the church that intensified after the murder of Stephen intended to stop the spreading of the gospel. But God's purposes were higher. And rather, what they intended for harm, God worked for good, sparking the spread of the gospel to the nations and to Samaria here. That's point number two, God's providence. Point number three, the gospel. Excuse me. Back to the through line, the summary. Christ's promise is accomplished by God's providence through the gospel. Through the gospel. Now, the emphasis on Philip speaking the gospel here is impossible to miss. It's just impossible to miss. Philip is like a gospel-speaking machine. No wonder he's called Philip the Evangelist. He's a man on a mission, a gospel mission. And what I want to do is just review the descriptions of his message 
here in, in Acts 8. His message is described in two ways in our text, verses 4 through 8, and then in three additional ways in, in a little bit of the broader context before he heads back from Samaria to Jerusalem to report back. So I just want to show you these, these five places where Philip's message is described because it's interesting because they're described in different ways, complementary ways. First, verse 4 says that Philip, quote, went about preaching the word. So what's his message? He, he's going around preaching the word, the word. Uh, perhaps Luke, the author of Acts, summarizes his message as the word because we know that Philip uses the, the wider scriptures to explain the gospel, to explain Jesus, because he does that with the Ethiopian eunuch in a few verses uh, beyond our text, where in verse 35, he, he goes to Isaiah 53, because that's where the Ethiopian eunuch is reading, and there, verse 35 says, Philip opened, opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So just one thought is, so it says Philip is going around preaching the word. And I'm thinking perhaps Luke uses that phrase for his message because Philip's approach is to use the Bible, use the scriptures to draw from the Old Testament in proclaiming Jesus Second, verse 5 says that Philip proclaimed to them the Christ, the Messiah. Huh. Well, we, we know that the, the Samaritans had their own teaching about the, the, the coming Messiah. In fact, when Jesus initiated that conversation to the Samaritan woman at the well, one of the things that she said to him was this. Uh, this is John 4, 25. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Samaritans knew this, the, the Messiah, that Christ was coming. And they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. And then do you remember what Jesus said to her in response? I who am speaking to you am he. Undoubtedly, Philip explained that you, know, you Samaritans are looking for and hoping for the Messiah, let me tell you, he's come. The, the, the good news about the Christ. The Christ has come. And, and let me tell you about him. And that leads us right into this, this uh, understanding, you know, the common understanding was that the Messiah was going to come in, in triumph and military might and, you know, oppress all the bad guys and, and, and be king and ruler uh, over all for his people. It was just full of hope. And what Philip needed to explain that, well, he has come, but not like you thought he was going to come not with political might or worldly triumph. He came as a suffering servant, despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Yet he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And God laid our sins on the Messiah. 
and he was pierced for our transgressions, and he suffered, and he died for us, for us, for our forgiveness, for our reconciliation to God. That's the Christ that came, the Messiah, and God raised him from the dead, and our hope is in him for eternal forgiveness now and forever and eternal reconciliation with God. And uh, he will come again. And that leads me to the third description of the message of Philip. Look down in verse 12. In verse 12, Philip is described as preaching the good news about the kingdom. Good news about the kingdom. And so I think about what's the nuance here of the gospel? Could it be that, I mean, it seems to be that this phrase captures the fact that the Christ, the Messiah, who has come to establish his reign, how am I going to explain that to people? Well, he has come and he has established his reign within the hearts of those who receive him. His kingdom is now, but it's not the kingdom that you thought would be now. It's now in the hearts of those who bow to his lordship, receive his promises, trust in his saving work. It's now and, and there is a day when he will come again to consummate his kingdom and all the wrongs will be righted Every tear will be wiped away and he will gather his people to live with God in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever and every single wrong will be punished either on the death of Christ or either will have been punished by the death of Christ or will be punished by God's judgment in eternal fire. There's a hope there for oppressed people. There's justice coming. There's peace coming now and hope and a king who's mine forever now and the wrongs will be righted in justice and eternal glory and eternal life later. The kingdom. Philip preached the good news about the kingdom with an already aspect and with a not yet, but it's common aspect. Fourth, these are all ways that this bearing witness is described. What, what is this gospel Philip is talking about? Well, he's preaching the word, first we saw. Second, he's pre proclaiming to them the Christ. Third, we, we saw he's preaching the good news about the kingdom. And fourth now, verse 12 says he preached the name of Jesus. Well, what's, what's the difference between preaching the Messiah, the Christ, and preaching the name of Jesus? Here's what I think. I think he's keying in on the incarnation. Jesus is the name that the angel told Mary to name him. It highlights his humanity. Jesus is the name that the angel told Joseph, his earthly father, to name him. Remember? To Mary, the angel said, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and we will be called the Son of the Most High God. So this human baby within Mary will be given the name Jesus. He will be called the Son of the Most High God. And then the word to Joseph from the angels. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So I take it Philip is explaining how in the world this good news of the coming Messiah wraps up in a baby born in Bethlehem into a Savior crucified in Jerusalem. He dies and he's raised from the dead. Fifth, verse 25, and this is a summary sentence, and yet it adds one more aspect. Fifth, verse 25 says, Now when they had testified, so apparently Philip wasn't alone in Samaria. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And it's just right there, I think, okay, Preaching the gospel, we've seen that before. Preaching the news, preaching the good news. But then when I see him described as uh, they had spoken the word of the Lord, I thought, how does that contribute to what he's talking about? Wouldn't it be? Might it be? I think it's the word of the Lord Jesus. So like the teachings of Jesus. What Jesus said about himself. The, the promises of, of Jesus. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Oh, you know, the teachings of the Lord Jesus. So, yeah, so I push back from that and I say, my, my, my. I, I love the rich complexity of the news of the gospel. I love it. I'll say more about that as I close. But, you know, I didn't say anything about the miracles in my summary sentence. And I'll tell you why. I, I put the miracles in this proclamation of the gospel. I put them under that. And uh, here, verse 6, let's read it again. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So why do I see the miracles as part of the gospel proclamation? Well, the first clue comes from Acts chapter 4. Remember this? Uh, I actually love this prayer of the, of the early church. This is when Peter and John were arrested for healing a, a lame man and the authorities told them, don't talk about Jesus anymore in this town. And they were released. They went back to the church and the church prayed this beautiful prayer in Acts 4. And, and they prayed, now, 
Now, Lord, which the word is sovereign. Now, sovereign, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And then they add this. Remember this? While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So their prayers, Lord, grant us boldness while you do things that only you can do. Heal and work. First clue. Second reason is that's what Hebrews says the miracles are for. <laughs> it's crystal clear. Hebrews 2. I see the miracles as gospel proclamation as part of it because Hebrews 2 describes these sun signs and wonders as witnesses of God to the truth of the witnesses. It's the witness of God to the veracity of the gospel proclaimer. Does that make sense? I'll read the verse. Hebrews 2, 3. Now, the gospel of Christ was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard witnesses. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. See it there? So... The witness to Christ was, to the gospel, was first declared by Jesus, by the Lord, and then by those who had heard him, the, the, the eyewitnesses, the people who actually heard him, while God also bore witness to their testimony by doing signs and wonders. So I say, okay, the miracles here are part of the gospel proclamation in the sense that Philip proclaims the gospel and God does things that only he can do to support the truth of the gospel of Christ. So that's the third point. Last point. Joy. Let me take a run at this sentence again. Christ's promise is accomplished by God's providence through the gospel, for the joy of all peoples. And, and it's no, you know, I'm not hiding the fact that I'm stealing the last phrase from our mission statement. For the joy of all peoples. Now, it's a beautiful thing that, I mean, think of how this could have gone. You know, Philip could have gone down to Samaria and he could have been stoned End of story, or at least end of that part of the story. But <laughs> verse 6, they heard, they paid attention with one accord to what was being said by Philip. They heard him and saw the sign. Verse 12 makes it crystal clear. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. And then, back to our text, verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Joy of all peoples. The gospel comes to a people. Jesus comes to a people. God grants sight to see, faith to believe in him 
through the gospel, through the standing forth of Jesus, and people are saved, and people are delighted. They come into the joy of knowing God, sins forgiven, reconciled, now and forever. That's the last point, very simply. Christ's promise is accomplished by God's providence through the gospel for the joy of all peoples. And I felt justified in adding the all because it's the Samaritans. And the gospel's going everywhere in the wider context. So let me, let me just speak one word of application um, on each of those four points that made the outline. Point number one, closing point number one, trust Christ's promises. Trust his promises. Rely on all that God promises to be for us in Christ in whatever circumstance you're in. He is and he will be faithful to his word. And he is and will be faithful to his people. I mean, think of the promises. Uh, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. In this world you will have trouble. You know, the early church is... I mean, the, the Saul is going house to house, ripping believers out of their homes. Trust Christ's promises no matter your circumstances and trust that his big purposes and promises will surely come to pass because he's promised them. So trust his promises. Point number two, rest in God's providence. Rest. I mean, you think about this situation. This, this is a very unrestful context. I mean, I mean <laughs> actually, you know, I'm, I'm the pastor for church planning. I look at that and I think, well, a church that's getting hauled off to jail is probably not a church that's going to plant a lot of churches, right? It's like, or send out a lot of missionaries because there's a lot of turmoil. It's exactly the opposite. Rest in God's providence. You know, we sang this old hymn written by William Cooper, and it's worth, if you don't know anything about that hymn, it's worth drilling into him and finding out more about him because he's just a struggling believer plagued by despair and depression. He is a beautiful poet and he writes all of these, this poetry for the church. And in that song, he captures the mystery and, and unknowing things about God's providence and the hope that we have as believers who rest in God's providence. I'm just going to read one of the verses to you again. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. God's at work. No matter how bad things seem, uh, do you ever feel like things are out of your control? <laughs> like, like, well, yeah, like all the time. Uh, that's, that's, it's not an accident. Um, God would have you there. 
Things are out of control in relationships, maybe in your family, out of control at work, out of control in our city, out of control in politics, out of control in our world. But God is in control. God is sovereign. And there's no question on his sovereign might, and there's no question on his sovereign goodness and steadfast love for his people. Rest in his providence. Third, this is what I struggled a little bit with to get in a slick sentence. Uh, let's be a gospel people. Uh, let's, let's speak the gospel to ourselves and to one another and to others. Uh, I teach a class every two years for the seminary students in the church planting concentration. And, and in that class, I just love it that we get to think about for a whole week, I don't know, 22 hours, think about the gospel. And I, and I hang over that class Paul's summary sentence of the gospel, the gospel being the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's think about that. Let's be that kind of people, like, like Philip. We can talk gospel this way and that way. And do you know this aspect of all that God's doing for us? And uh, I want to be that kind of a people, a gospel people that, uh, that encourage our own hearts and souls with the promises of the gospel and God's favor to us, encourage one another, and actually... In that gospel awareness, we have plenty of things to say to unbelievers because we're so aware of the gospel ourselves. You know, think about this. I, I thought about, you know, if, if you were given the assignment, you know, if the, if the lot fell to you to go to Samaria and you know these people hate you, what would you start with? Hey, folks, uh, I mean you no harm. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not that bad of a guy. <laughs> like, would, would you lead with you? <laughs> like, I hope not. <laughs> uh, hey, I, I like you. I've been reading about you, and, and we've been mean to you. I'm sorry about that. You know, like, would, would you? Uh, lead with that, and I don't think that would lead to much joy in the city now and forever. And it's striking to me, Philip leads with gospel. Gospel, 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 gospel. How many ways do we see it? Five or six different ways. And, and how does that work? Just one quick, one quick New Testament observation on ethnic harmony, harmony in the church. Uh, Ephesians 2.16, God reconciles us both, Jew and Gentile into one body in Christ. God reconciles us both first to himself and then by implication to each other as he unites us into one body. So Philip's not ignoring the racial, the, the ethnic tensions, the prejudice, the historic stuff. He just sees that the durable way to work for lasting joy among the Jews and among the Samaritans and the Gentiles and the all nations is to lead with the gospel. Last point, enjoy God for the joy of all peoples. 
enjoy God. You know, sometimes those of us who've been Christians a while, or maybe even if you haven't been a Christian for very long, you kind of lose your joy. You know, remember the letter to the church of Ephesus in Revelation? You've you've lost your first love. Um, But, you know, here, it's interesting to me that the gospel comes anew to the the city of uh, Samaria, the the city that that Philip is going to, and there's much joy in this city. And I'm thinking that, you know, let's take a clue from new believers, right? (laughs) There is joy in Jesus. I remember. (laughs) I remember this. And let us delight ourselves in the Lord, and he will give us the desires of our heart. Namely, he will give us our delight in the Lord. That's what that verse means. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Your desire is delight in him. Lord, give us more. Give us more joy in you. For ourselves, for our church, and for the joy of all peoples. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thanks for your word. Your word is just so good to us. And I pray you'd massage this into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.